0: Last week, we began to think about how Sabbath rest is such an important part of mission because without the rest, we're really doing mission on our own and in our own strength and there's just that's just not going to work. I want us to do something as a group, as a body, together collectively that may be a little bit difficult for some of you. I want us to be silent for one minute. And I mean, be as still as you possibly can, starting now. Was that difficult for you? Why? If it was, why was it difficult? I mean, did you feel... A little bit self-conscious? Maybe your nose was itching and you wanted to be as still as you possibly could. Did it seem like five minutes instead of one? Or did it by chance feel like a waste of time on a Sunday morning? I mean, what is it that is so difficult about silence for us? Look, when we talk about what happens on Sunday morning, we, we seek to not allow any dead time to elapse like where one person finishes and goes and sits down then the other one gets up and comes no we ask people to be right ready to move so that we can make the absolute most use of our time here on Sunday morning I mean I have a sound machine that helps me go to sleep anybody have a sound machine I don't like I just don't like to go to sleep in the in the dead of quiet I can't go to sleep in the dead of quiet it's difficult I mean we all like peace and quiet at different times, but most of us don't want too much peace and quiet. I mean, just think of all the reasons, the possible reasons that we don't like to be quiet. I mean, there's always something for us to say. Well, some of us anyway. I mean, there's always something that could be said. Maybe I feel alone when it's quiet. Or perhaps I start to feel guilty when I'm quiet. It begin, I begin to think about all the things that I need to do when I'm quiet. Just sitting there. It's like, man. And, and, and it does end up seeming like a waste of time just to sit and be quiet. If we don't like five minutes of silence, how much less do we want a whole day of rest Prescribe for us now once again let me acknowledge that many of us would love to have a day of rest but how about if if you were forced to have a day of rest on which you did almost nothing you accomplished nothing in your mind how would you like that well no wonder so few of us practice Sabbath rest now it's not a command in the New Testament we'll made that very clear last week and we'll we'll talk about it some more Uh, We began talking about Sabbath rest last Sunday, and we talked about what it is and what it's not. We're going to continue talking about this optional practice in these New Testament days about the benefits of quieting our hearts before the Lord for an extended period of time. Not just a quiet time every day, but an extended period of time, if, if not once a week, not a whole day every week, at least chunks of time here or there. Uh... First, let's review, though, what Sabbath rest is not. It's not a New Testament command that must be obeyed. The, 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 the New Testament writers almost downplayed this uh, because it was so closely associated with legalism, a wrong spirit about what, is, um, to what constitutes a, a proper relationship with God. It's not a discipline that will make you more holy simply because you observe it. We have just as many tendencies toward legalism after we are saved as we do before we're saved. So it's 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 not a discipline that's going to make us more holy simply because we observe it. It's not a day on which rest means to please ourselves without any consideration for God. In other words, you know, it's not a day just to forget. It's it's very tempting for me to just not think about anything on a day off. Not think about God any more than I think about work. And I just get distracted with movies or music or whatever. That's not what Sabbath rest is. Let's talk about a little bit what it is or remember from last week what it is. It is first and foremost, Sabbath rest first and foremost is found in Jesus. It is not unguided rest. If our rest, according to Hebrews 4, is only found in Jesus, then our focus on Him has to be a part of. Of true Sabbath rest. It is the rhythm of life that God initiated at creation. And we ignore that rhythm to our peril. You don't want to be going day after day after day without any time off. It starts to affect the quality of your work. It's an opportunity to remember that this is His story. And I am blessed just to be a part of it. Isn't that so? I mean, I, I, what a blessing... That God allows me to, I am not the story. It's his story and I'm just a part of it. But what a blessing that is. And, and, And this last point goes right along with the third. It's a reminder that Jesus' mission for his church will be accomplished with or without my participation. But Sabbath rest replenishes my soul, my body, my mind, my spirit. And it gets me prepared to get right back into it. God graciously gave us rest, but He graciously gave us work. A lot more work, in fact, than He did rest. So rest replenishes me and helps me to be prepared for a renewed focus on mission. So we see the importance of Sabbath rest, even though it's not commanded in the New Testament. If this list is not enough to encourage you in that direction then hopefully as we talk about both today and next Sunday it was going to be only today like last week was going to be only today it was going to only be today but now it's divided into two Sundays and so as we talk this week and next week we're incur- we'll be encouraged hopefully to strive for the rest as Hebrews 4 that's kind of a uh, it's, it's a paradox isn't it strive to enter into the rest the writer of the Hebrews told his readers, and believe me, this was. There's a lot more to it. We don't have time to talk about it today, but there's a real sense that if if rest is going to happen, we're going to have to work hard at making it happen. At least in our day, our text this week is Philippians two verses five to eight. It really connects with the third benefit, which we won't get to until next week. But uh, that's more than okay this um, this text is big enough to cast a shadow on two weeks. Um, <clears throat> I must say that I've spent some time swimming in these waters, the waters of Philippians two, five through eight these last couple of weeks. It's not always pleasant. You think that we're called to christlike humility, but all oh, the blessings when we humble ourselves before the Lord. So, our text this morning, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. If you would please stand, as is our custom, and we will read God's Word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's so much before and after this text that is important, and we will... Get to that next week. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, not sure why it is we come uh, fighting and flailing and kicking to a place of rest. Um, there, there are lots of possible explanations, but really it's unimportant. We pray that you would help us this morning to see the need to come before you. Not only that we might be all that we should be in your kingdom, but that we would also receive all of the blessing that you have intended for us. Lord, if you have intended blessing for us, it's a good thing. Help us not to be so noble that we are too busy to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And be seated. Well, three benefits to Sabbath rest. Um, I'm going to talk about it this morning and next Sunday. And hopefully, you'll find time to apply these benefits when you come before the Lord in rest, and time to apply these truths. Actually, the first point doesn't have a specific application. But there are multiple benefits for those who would practice in this way. Sabbath rest, first of all, reminds us to always be in awe of God. I think it's most unfortunate that preachers feel the need every single Sunday to apply the text that they preach from. It's always a, so what? What does this text have to do with me? How does this change my life? Uh, now, in fairness, there's, there's major application. Not only this Sunday, not, not only today, but almost every Sunday when the Word is preached, I understand the sentiment behind the Bible is not written to increase our knowledge, but rather to change our behavior. There are problems, though, and if you don't handle this axiom very, very carefully. I mean, it's a belief in the truth of the gospel that changes us over time. Belief in the truth of the gospel, not simple obedience to biblical commands that can be accomplished in the flesh. There are a whole lot of very, very good people who don't know Jesus. And so the Bible is written for far more than just To change our behavior. Sometimes we need to read the Bible and just sit in awe of God. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain. And all of a sudden, Jesus' face became like the sun and his clothes shone like a light. They shined like a light. Then Moses and Elijah appeared. Now, how The disciples knew that this was Moses and Elijah. We're not told. But they knew it. All of a sudden, there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking. And Peter didn't have any idea how to apply this truth. And so he said, Lord, if you want me to, I'll make three tents in honor of the three of you. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then there's this incredible voice from heaven. It's God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, Hear him, listen to him. And they did exactly what you and I would have done. They they fell on their faces in terror. Jesus told them not to be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw only Jesus. Now, what are we supposed to make of that? Uh, For starters, we can say, man, God was here on earth with us. How do you apply that? Well, you you can say, man, God was here on earth. That's one of us. That's an amazing and awesome thing. Can you just absorb that without needing a list of seven steps to successful parenting or five secrets to becoming a better student? I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but most of the time in Scripture, When God tells us to just be quiet, just to shut our mouths and contemplate Him, it's in the context of His awesome power, oftentimes, most of the time, seen in judgment. You're familiar, no doubt, with Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Now, when we Think about that verse. We tend to think of it in terms of a beautiful garden or, you know, a field of grain gently waving in the golden waves of grain, you know, gently. And yet, it's in the context of God speaking to His people, saying the earthquakes that come, the floods, the raging seas, I'm responsible for all of that. Be still and know. That I am God. He's going to take care of his people. Even in the midst of chaos. There's a very similar feel in Habakkuk 2.20. Where in the midst of a conversation about judgment. We're told. But Yahweh. Is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In our New Testament day of grace. Grace. We have experienced the nearness of God through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And it's easy, if we're not careful, to lose our awe of God. We're going to talk about that in home groups this week. Talk about the transcendence and the imminence of God and how it's easy to... If you don't know what those words mean, find a home group to be at either tonight, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, or Thursday night. There are home groups meeting from... If you're quite a done, find one and you'll learn more about the importance of being in awe of this transcendent God who has claimed us as our own. Sabbath rest. A rest that is intentionally focused on God will remind us of our Creator and our Redeemer. And even though Jesus has come to this earth, and even though the Holy Spirit is given to us and constantly reminds us of His love and His tender, tender mercies toward us, we will also be reminded to be in awe of this magnificent God. Busyness keeps our focus on the immediate. And the immediate is temporary. Rest, Sabbath rest, will turn our focus on God, who is eternal. And it will remind us that in this temporary life, we are to live it with eternity in view. Sabbath rest gives us the opportunity to be still before the Lord, allowing our worlds to be Put back in order so that we will remember who we're serving and why. That's one benefit of Sabbath rest. And while it's the same argument for a quiet time every day. When we take extended periods of time there are fewer restrictions. Our hearts are even fuller with the awe of God. Another benefit of Sabbath rest is that it creates the optimal environment for true repentance, which in turn produces genuine joy. Now, when I say the word repentance, or whenever you hear the word repent, what comes to your mind? Most likely, joy is not the first word that you think about. That's that's probably, you know, it's kind of, this is great sorrow. You may, in fact, think of John the Baptist as some wild-eyed preacher dressed in these really bizarre clothes, screaming, Repent, you low-bellied snakes, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It wasn't like that exactly, but it wasn't terribly far from that either because there was great sin that needed to be exposed. And we cannot have relationship with God and joy apart from repentance Usually, our minds move toward judgment when we think about repentance. The, the problem is, and the reason that repentance is, is kind of a, has a negative connotation for us is because we don't want to think that we're that bad. I mean, look, I repented, I confessed my sins when I was saved, but I'm not that bad anymore. I'm not near like I used to be. So I don't really want to repent, man. When I was a kid, I was getting spankings. Now I'm a, a parent and I'm giving them. And I don't need anymore. So I don't want to think about it. I just don't want to think about it. If I'm arrested for saying that, someone will be here next Sunday. You know, you hear preachers talking about the need for us to live lives of continual repentance. Really? Repent all the time? Really? Yes, really. But repentance is a wonderful gift. Although it can be a very tricky proposition if we don't take time to engage the Lord properly when we come before Him. The Apostle Paul talks about the importance of repenting the correct way as opposed to the wrong way in Second Corinthians 7. Now, going into significant detail about the context of the issues with which Paul is dealing, let's look at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. For even if I, Paul, made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul had written a very sharp letter. To the Corinthians who had a lot of problems, a lot of issues. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. There is no, no negative connotation to a godly sorrow. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, again, without going into great detail, let's. Try to understand. Godly grief or godly sorrow leads to salvation for the lost and peace for the Christ follower. Salvation for those who don't know Jesus, peace for those who do. And worldly sorrow leads to death. So it would be worth our while to to say how do you discern between the two? When my sin has caused me grief, how do I know if it's a worldly grief or a godly grief? We'll consider both for a moment. Let me. I was just thinking on the way over here about this. So, what was Judas' response when Jesus was crucified? He went out and wept, and he he hung himself. What was Peter's response when he denied Jesus? He went out and wept bitterly, and Jesus came to him and said, "Came to the to to." to um, To Mary and said, tell my disciples and Peter that I have arisen and I'll meet them down the road. In other words, (laughs) tell Peter, I love him very much. I want to see him. Now, both repented. Both were sorry for their actions. But one led to death. One led to a joy. A restored relationship with the Lord and, and, and joy. Well, let's think about worldly grief. Worldly grief often manifests itself as a sorrow that I've been caught in my sin. Or it can be a sorrow about the consequences of sin. You ever felt like that? You know, when I, well, years ago when I was at Teen Valley, this lady lost uh, a little seven-year-old girl to a car accident. It was a tragic accident. And uh, her name was Mary, and she was a twin she had a brother named Mark, and what a sweet little girl this Mary was, and a bright little girl. Mark struggled a little bit. He was a little, just a little bit slower, which is okay. It's just the way God made him. And so we went to talk to the mother, and she was telling us how that Mary used to sort of, she would take the responsibility for Mark's actions sometimes. And she would get in trouble rather than letting. She just looked out for her brother. And so one time, the, the mother had made a chocolate pie, and she came home, and there was one piece of pie missing, and there was chocolate pie all over Mark's face. You know, and she said, Mark, did you get into that chocolate pie? And Mark said, Have you checked with Mary yet? <laughs> well, that's the way we are, isn't it? I mean, you know, we, we don't, sometimes you just flat out busted and you're sorry that you got busted you know ah, I wish I'd have wiped that pie off my face you know I shouldn't have been so careless so foolish or we're we're sorry about the consequences of sin I mean to be caught in in, in a sin if, if you are if you have this worldly sorrow it's going to cause shame and embarrassment and more than a little self-pity it's going to look for ways to blame other people for your own sin. My goodness, what a day. Is there anything that I'm responsible for? Well, according to you, I'm responsible for everything. According to me, you're responsible for me, for my problems. It's the way we tend, tend to live. This kind of sorrow and repentance is it's totally me-focused and fails to get at the very root of the problem, which, ironically, is me. Since the real problem is not addressed, then my grief not only fails, not only fails to affect a real change in me, because, because I'm feeling sorry for myself, not only does it fail to affect a change in me, but it ultimately leads to death because I take God out of the picture while going through the motions of sorrow and confession. So if I'm caught in a sin, is it too late to repent? It's never too late to truly repent. My sorrow, my grief, however, over sin must be a godly grief. Now, Godly grief is a grief that recognizes that I have been created and loved by a good and holy God and that my sin is an affront to Him more than anything else, and it's an affront to God. If I do something horrible to you, that's a terrible sin against you. But even greater is my sin against God. We can't hardly think in those terms because God is not front and center, and the person that I've hurt is But first and foremost, repentance recognizes that I have sinned against a holy God, my creator, my redeemer. It's genuine sorrow for offending God. Godly grief will also recognize the hurt that my sin has caused others and truly be sorry about it and correct it if at all possible. It will create genuine sorrow for my actions. True repentance paves the way. For lasting change in the way that I live. Worldly sorrow doesn't. Godly sorrow creates the opportunity for real change. Now, to provide a little context for this this passage, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, some of whom were uh, opposing him on the gospel, it's not just, Paul's not just saying, hey, you didn't like me and that really makes me upset. No, Paul was preaching the gospel. And to oppose Paul on that, on that truth, was to oppose the Lord. Hey, remember what he told the Galatians? If I or anybody, if an angel from heaven comes to you and gives another gospel than the one that's been given, count them cursed. Count me cursed. So Paul is not just saying, um, you should like me better than the other guys. No, he's saying truth, of, truth is at stake. And and that's what this text is talking about. But it's, it's more than fair to apply this passage to the blessing of repentance for particular sins. The first evidence of true repentance is an earnestness that results in intentional living. This is all from verse 11. It leads to a life that is not careless but directed toward God. That produces the second fruit, which is a desire to clear oneself. No longer content to live for self, the repentant person seeks to live for God and establish his or her loyalty to God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, there's an indignation against sin. It's no longer attractive, but disgusting to such a level that it leads to indignation. And the fear of God. Brings motivation to avoid sin. There's a sense here of being afraid of God's judgment on one's life because of sin. My, I don't know why, just on the way over here this morning, uh, or as I was thinking this morning, it was too late to, to put anything on the slides or to add to the home group notes that have already gone out. But I was just thinking about the fear of God and thinking about Ananias and Sapphira, the awe of God. Can you imagine? This is in New Testament days. God killed them. On the spot for lying about what they had done for God. They were all me focused and God said it's not going to be that way. Does God still work that way? Yes, He does. He does. We don't see it very often. But there are times that are almost undeniable that God has stepped in and judged sin. There is also a desire, a longing to live righteously before God. Let's face it, sin can be attractive. Now before you say, not to me, it could be that you're struggling with sin and you don't even know it. It's a self-righteousness. I, 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 I am stunned at the level of self-righteousness that I've encountered over the years. And occasionally, it's looking back at me from the mirror, the self-righteousness that I find. It's, it's, it's absolutely stunning, thinking that I'm above this, I'm better than. God has a way of, of, of those that He loves, of those that He's directing, of allowing us to see our own sin. And then He brings us to true, godly sorrow. True repentance leads to a longing for God and His righteous power in our lives to overcome sin. That's where zeal comes in. It's a passion to honor God and others with our lives. This passion is so intense that sin in our lives must be judged and punished by us. That's what repentance does. No, No wonder that the book of Acts calls repentance a gift of God. And what a difference godly sorrow and repentance can make in our lives. And Sabbath rest gives us the space to repent. Now it's not that repentance doesn't need to happen every single day. It does. We need to be repenting every day of sin in our lives. If we're going to resemble anything, if our lives are going to resemble anything close to a, to a spirit-filled relationship with God, we're going to have to be repenting. But face it when our lives were filled when our lives are filled with activity and there's no time to lay our souls bare before the Lord it's quite easy it's quite natural in fact to find ourselves bringing our worldly sorrow before the Lord and if we're moving quickly enough we can convince ourselves that this is true godly sorrow that we're bringing to the Lord but it's really Worldly. And if it's, if it's true godly sorrow, why is it that we continue to feel so negative, so upset with others, so guilty? Because true godly sorrow doesn't leave us in that state. It frees us from all of that guilt. No, that's why joy is the result of true repentance. When we stop and sit in awe of God, and we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our sin to us so that we can repent with godly sorrow, at that very moment, we begin to feel joy that grows and grows before the Lord. That's what Sabbath rest can do. And if we take extended time, periods of time, maybe it's not a whole day, but if you take three or four hours to just, Quiet your heart before the Lord and enjoy your relationship with Him and repent where you need to. It makes repenting on a daily basis far more likely and far better. Far more productive. Well, there's one last benefit of Sabbath rest that we're going to discuss, but it'll be next week. I'm going to go ahead and let you know what we'll be thinking about, especially since the last... Point relates to our text for today that we never really got to, Philippians two, five through eight. I decided to leave it as the text because, as I said earlier, it's, it's it's large enough to cast a shadow over two weeks worth of preaching. The last benefit of Sabbath rest is that it encourages us to embrace Christ like humility, thus elevating us to a special place in kingdom service. Now that may. Raise some questions in your mind, and that's okay if it does. We're going to spend the entire time next week thinking about this point and the text, Philippians 2, 5 to 8. I want to encourage you, if you have not already of late been swimming in these waters, to dive in and spend time in this passage about Christ incredible humility that's given to us as an example. And if Jesus lives through us, then that becomes our humility as well. Let's pray.